With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up in about a half an hour's time. But first off, it is the Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News. Hello, I'm Jamie Poisson. On Thursday morning at 5.07 a.m. Ukraine time, the missile strikes began. Russian President Vladimir Putin had just announced that his armed forces would, quote, conduct a special military operation. Its target, a European country, a democracy, home to 44 million people, a place where millions live in cities like Kyiv, Kharkiv, and Odessa. The people of Kharkiv now live a new reality. Their city under siege by an enemy unseen. I tell you what, I just heard a big bang right here behind me. I thought we shouldn't have done the live shot here. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev right now. Missile strikes were just the beginning. Russia also unleashed planes, helicopters, tanks and long-range artillery. The attacks came from the north, from the east and from the south. By dawn, air raid sirens were sounding in Kyiv, the capital. And many people outside the country would soon wake up to a much different world. These are among the darkest hours for Europe since the end of World War II. As the day unfolded, so did the destruction. Crews and ballistic missiles hammered Kyiv's main airport. Dozens of military facilities across the country were reportedly wiped out. The airstrikes and missiles also rained down on civilian areas, including major cities. At a hospital in Donetsk, at least four people were killed by Russian shelling. Ukrainian officials also said that Russia had captured the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and that the Chernobyl area near Kyiv was under control of Russian troops. I'm recording this at just after 5 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday. At this point, at least 57 Ukrainians, both civilians and military, have died, according to the Ukrainian government. Ukraine also says it has killed 50 Russian troops. The Ukrainian military is outgunned, but it fought back, saying it had shot down several Russian planes, helicopters and tanks. Western leaders condemned the invasion. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Make no mistake, Russia's attack on Ukraine is also an attack on democracy, on international law, on human rights, and on freedom. History will judge President Putin as harshly as the world condemns him today. Today, he cements his place in the ranks of the reviled European dictators who caused such carnage in the 20th century. But at this point, a larger military conflict involving NATO members like the United States and Canada is not on the table. Instead, Russia's economy has been the target. The U.S. Treasury has said sanctions would impact 80% of all banking assets in Russia. Canada, the U.K. and the EU have also announced sanctions, but many countries are facing criticism for not making them tougher. 
Today, I'm speaking to two people on the ground in Ukraine about what's been happening since the invasion began and what could unfold next. In a few minutes, we'll be hearing from BBC's chief international correspondent, Lise Desette. But first, I'm speaking to Olga Tokoryuk. She's a Ukrainian freelance journalist and a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Hi, Olga. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for making the time. Hello. So, so Olga, where, where are you right now? I'm in Ukraine right now in a safe location, which I don't want to disclose because of uh, security reasons. I totally understand if you can't, but are you able to disclose the city that you're in? No, sorry. I can't disclose even like the part of Ukraine I'm in because the situation is so fluid and I'm worried for the safety of me and my family. Yeah, I'm so sorry that you're going through this right now. Um, yes, it's unnecessary precautions. You and I are speaking just before 6 p.m. Thursday, your time, and just before 11 a.m. in Eastern Standard Time. And, and without giving too much information that would identify your location, I wonder if you could describe what you are seeing and hearing right now. Yes. Well, uh, the location I'm in uh, hasn't been affected by Russian military action yet, and I hope it won't. But uh, what I see here on the ground, the people are trying, you know, to uh, get cash from the ATMs. There are queues to the ATMs and also the supermarkets at gas stations uh, because people are afraid that there might be some shortages of supply in the next days. Uh, uh, at the same time, the vast territory of Ukraine has been covered already by Russian military action. Russian uh, airstrikes have targeted different parts of Ukraine. So it's not just eastern Ukraine anymore. It's also central, southern, northern and western Ukraine. So basically all of Ukraine is under uh, a Russian invasion. This is a full scale invasion. You know, people are trying to flee to safety. Uh, there are there were queues in Kiev in the capital uh, of uh, people trying to to leave the city uh, long uh, tra- uh, traffic lines at the exits towards the western part of the country and towards um, European countries the western you know the, the western Europe uh, so uh, this is what is happening uh, um, Russia is targeting not just military objects in Ukrainian territory it's also targeting Civilian targets, uh, uh, hospitals were bombed with uh, uh, civilians were killed there. We also received reports that children were killed in Kherson region of uh, mm. Ukraine. This, what is happening is uh, really a tragic, horrifying uh, war, uh, unprovoked aggression by Russia on Ukraine, uh, just uh, because Ukrainians wanted their country to be free and independent and aligned with the West. It's not crisis. It's it's war. It's uh, it's disgusting, and it feels like so. My family stays in Lviv, and uh, I, I feel like I, I don't know when I will see them. You know, I I don't know if any of them will die, or my friends will die, or anything like that. Like, if there will be a bombing of civilian buildings or not? Like, do they close the borders? Just unknown, unknown. That's what scares me the most. Olga, can I ask you, this this invasion by the Russian military right now, was this your worst fear? Well, of course, you know, uh, I think no one ever, like in in the worst nightmares, uh, can imagine living in a country at war. Ukraine has been living at war since 2014 when Russia first invaded, but the war has been limited to 
tiny parts in eastern Ukraine. Now it's on all Ukraine's territory. This is a huge country. 40 million people live here. You know, our children, they woke up today in the morning from, uh, from the sound of explosions of Russian airstrikes. And they ask questions like, mommy, why, uh, what is happening? Is this war? Are Russians here to kill us? You know, this is something that is heartbreaking to hear as a parent. Like, why do our children have to experience this? Why do do they have to ask these questions? Why should we, instead of, you know, uh, thinking about the future and the bright future for our kids, are uh, now worried with uh, protecting their lives and saving them from uh, murderous dictator in the Kremlin. Like many here, Natalia is trying to comprehend what has befallen Ukraine, trying to work out how to protect her two-year-old Karina. We're shocked. We're totally shocked. We are afraid for our children, for our families. Are you thinking about trying to move? I I don't know. I just don't know. Where can I go? We don't know where to go. Who will have us? Nobody, nowhere is waiting for us. You hear that there's a a real sense of shock in cities like Kiev right now that, that, that they did not think that this would happen, that the, the, the Russians would not, uh, uh, launch such a, a broad and uh, massive invasion of the country. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. I think most people didn't believe that Russia would really uh, launch such a huge scale invasion, that they would stop at nothing, you know, at killing uh, military personnel, but also civilians, killing children. And that's what they are doing. So, of course, there is a sense of shock and people are trying to uh, cope with the situation and somehow to react, to flee or to shelter in safe location. Think about like how should how can they protect their loved ones and their children at this moment? And I think what is very important is also the, the Western reaction now. You know, the situation is very fluid. It's changing very fast. Uh, Kyiv is being surrounded as we speak. And, you know, uh, it's a city of three, four million people. Uh, if it falls, it could be catastrophic. Now the, the fights are also ranging close to Chernobyl nuclear power plant. President Zelensky has tweeted within the last hour that Russian occupation forces are trying to seize the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. That is the radioactive waste disposal area. Um, and says that our defenders, their defenders, are giving their lives so that the tragedy of 1986 will not be repeated. That's, of course, when the plant melted down uh, It might trigger, uh, you know, ecological, environmental catastrophe if a nuclear power plant is affected. So I think the West should react really now. Like there is no time to waste. Uh, All possible means should be on the table to stop Putin's aggression, starting from sanctions and going on with imposition of a no-fly zone over Ukraine, um, providing more assistance to Ukraine, military assistance financial assistance, also humanitarian assistance, because what might unfold in the next days, uh, uh, it could be a huge humanitarian catastrophe with millions of Ukrainian refugees, uh, you know, trying to uh, find safety in the European Union countries. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could tell me, related to that, what, what, what your biggest fears are here around how this develops in the coming days, days and weeks. 
Well, I think the biggest fear is a loss of life. You know, Ukraine has been doing remarkable progress in the recent years, despite Russian aggression in 2014. You know, the Ukrainian civil society is strong with a lot of activists, with a lot of NGOs, with free media, with vibrant cultural scene. Uh, Ukraine has strengthened its military and, you know, hundreds of thousands of brave Ukrainian soldiers in their prime age are now defending our country and their lives could be terminated from one moment to another. And, and that's, I think, is the most horrifying prospect to, lead to losing, of losing all these uh, great people, of losing, uh, you know, uh, thousands and potentially millions of lives due to the actions of uh, Russian dictator Putin. Basically, he's trying to, I don't know, wipe Ukraine from the face of the earth. So it's something, it's even even hard to express it with words, what is happening, you know, and I'm also trying somehow to come to terms with the situation, but it's very difficult. It seems so surreal. is part one of your Friday edition of the Front Burner from CBC News. We'll have part two in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You're listening to After Nine. Tune in on Sunday mornings at 8.30 for a Let the Bible Speak radio broadcast. This is Pastor Andrew Simpson, and each week on our program we will hear Christ Jesus being preached, gospel hymns being sung, and encouraging news from our churches in British Columbia. Our goal at Let the Bible Speak is to preach Christ in all His fullness, to man in all his need. So tune in on Sunday mornings at 8.30 for Let the Bible Speak only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. In Prince George, DDR2 Computer Solutions is your first stop for sales, service, and repairs. Located just off Queensway at 857 2nd Avenue next to MetaChair, DDR2 can keep your business or home system running at peak performance. Their in-shop and on-site rates are competitive, so you receive quality service at an affordable price. Plus, there's a special rate for seniors. They also carry top-of-the-line laptops, motherboards, and graphics cards for high-end gaming. When you think of computers, think of DDR2. Call 236-423-2216. That's 236 236- 4232216 Learn to love your smile again at Der Denture Center. Der Denture Center offers a full range of denture services from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same day repairs are also available. Der Denture Center is located on the 3rd floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation. No referral required. For help with your existing set or if you need new, Der Denture Center in the Victoria Medical Building, call 250-562-6638. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly sunny today, wind at 15K, a high of minus 4 with a wind chill to minus 10. A few clouds tonight, more wind, a low of minus 10 with a wind chill to minus 17. For Saturday, cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries, wind becoming south 20 in the afternoon, a high of minus 3 with an afternoon wind chill to minus 9. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George, this is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of the Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News. Uh, Olga, I'm so sorry that you and your family are uh, are going through this right now. I, I wonder if I could ask you a final question, which you do not have to answer if you don't feel comfortable. But you said that you were uh, um, sheltering right now um, in an undisclosed location with your family. Do you have children? 
Yes. Can I ask you what you're what you're saying to them right now? Uh, well, at this moment, um, my child is with my other relatives because I'm trying as a journalist to speak to as many media, international media as I can. But of course, like in the morning, I told my child that Russia invaded Ukraine, that we are doing our best to defend our country, that we have strong soldiers and strong army who are protecting Ukraine, but that mommy, as a journalist, also has to do her part to protect Ukraine, to defend it by spreading the word, by talking with the international media about what is happening here. So I think like every Ukrainian now is thinking like, what can we do in each of our capacity, you know, to to defend Ukraine? Because we have so much to lose. We have beautiful country. We have wonderful people. We have children, and you know, it's it's just so painful what is happening. Oh, guy, I hope I hope you stay safe and um, uh, please stay in touch with us. Uh, uh, yes. You're doing really important work, so I thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Now I'm speaking to the BBC's chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette. She's in Kiev. It's a moment of history, a very dark history that is unfolding in Ukraine. And it is at once a moment which matters not just to the capital Kiev, where I am now, but around the world. A moment which the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, said of a war of a type and a scale that we thought belong to history, but it's not. It's taking place in 2022, a war of Mm -hmm. our time. And what is the scene like uh, in the capital, Kiev, where you are right now? What's happening on the ground? When I woke up, as all of us were woken up by these explosions in the morning, when we heard first the explosions here in Kiev, which were like, first of all, like distant claps of thunder, then rolling thunder, then just before 7 a.m. in the morning, when we heard the emergency sirens sounding off. I looked out the window and there they were, the yellow buses running on time, hurrying to work. The sirens have just started here in the capital, Kiev. The invasion, the attack that Russia promised would never happen has now started. And the Ukraine- but then with every hour came the reports of queues forming at supermarkets, at petrol stations, at the ATMs, people going into the metro where public transport is now free carrying small suitcases, perhaps not knowing how the rest of the day would would turn out. As the day went on, more and more people started leaving this city, started leaving other cities. The roads out of Kiev were jammed with cars going somewhere, we don't know where, trying to take their families, many of them, to somewhere safer. And a growing sense that this was a total, totally new and dangerous chapter in this long-running conflict between Ukraine and its neighbor, Russia. I heard it clearly. The earth was really shaking. So we got up and now we are waiting for fuel. We will buy some so we can be mobile in case all communications are cut. We have to prepare. What else can we do? We were just talking to another Ukrainian journalist, Olga Tokariuk, and um, 
she talked about the sense of shock she has over how massive and widespread this invasion is. And I wonder if you share that shock. Week in, week out, for many weeks now, we've heard President Zelensky of Ukraine calling for calm, warning Western leaders who spoke of an imminent invasion by Russia that in talking so much about escalation, they could bring about this escalation. And everyone we met here in the capital, Kiev, the people we spoke to elsewhere in the country, they kept telling us, this war is not new for us. We've been living with this war. We've been living with Russia in our lives for the last eight years, ever since Russia first occupied, annexed Crimea. Its forces moved into the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. And when we'd asked, are you worried? They shrugged to say, well, we're getting on with our lives, preparing for the worst, but hoping against hope that this invasion wouldn't happen. How could it happen in this time in which we're living? And then last night, past midnight, there was a distinct change in mood that people were beginning to think it could happen. Mm-hmm. I, I I see that President Zelensky, Ukrainian President Zelensky, is offering guns to any citizen who wants that. We have weapons to protect ourselves, to protect our lands, and we are ready to give weapons to all those who declare themselves ready to protect our land. I, I wonder what kind of fight will the Ukrainians be able to mount here? What a fight it is to take on the might of the Russian military, to take on the attacks which are coming from the land, the sea, and the air. It's generally believed that the Ukrainian military is in much better shape now than it was in 2014, where Russia could basically come in without much of a fight. We've seen here day in, day out, what's described as defensive weaponry coming to help the Ukrainian forces, arms and ammunition coming from Western countries from around the world, including including from Canada. We also know that the reserves have been called up. There's said to be something like 200,000 reserves. Initially, there was nearly 40,000 who were called up. At that, at that point, when they were called up yesterday, it wasn't a general mobilization. And then suddenly, at the same time that martial law was imposed, President Zelensky said, anyone who has some battle experience, anyone who wants to volunteer, we will provide you with weapons. We'd already seen that the gun shops were doing brisker business, that people were going in. It's a licensed. You can't just go in and buy. You have to get a, a license. But now more weapons are, are being made available because this is a fight, a fight of a nation against a neighboring nation. And Ukraine knows that for all of the words and the ammunition and the weapons and the statements and the sanctions which are being imposed against Russia that are coming from outside, When it comes to fighting the Russian army, taking on the Russian navy, seeing the Russian warplanes in the skies, it's Ukrainians and Ukrainians alone who will be doing this fight. We're talking at... uh... 8 p.m. your time. Uh, it's, it's about 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're about 
15 hours into this, into this war now. And what do you think Putin's plan is here? His forces began coming uh, from the south, from the Black Sea, coming from the east into the areas of eastern Ukraine, where he'd already recognized uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, coming from Belarus to the north. And we've seen a steady advance, fighting, explosions in all of these directions. As incredible as it is to imagine, his forces seem to be heading towards Kiev. There was a major assault on the Antonov airfield, which is about an hour and a half half drive from Kiev. It's the major cargo airport for, for Ukraine. There, we heard earlier from the Ukrainian authorities that they were fighting back against Russian paratroopers who had gone into that airfield. And we understand it's largely under Russian control now. And we are here at the Antonov airport, which is about 25 kilometers, 15 miles or so out of the center. These troops you can see over here. Stand up, Lewis. These troops you can see over here, they are Russian airborne forces. They have taken this airport. They've allowed us to come in and be with them as they defend the perimeter of this air base here. Where We've heard about further north, closer to the Belarusian border. And the Belarusian border is only about 90 kilometers, 50 miles uh, from Kiev. But the Chernobyl power plant has now also been taken over by the, by the Russians. So the general sense is that they will try to move towards the capital, Kiev, President Putin spoke about the military infrastructure. Today was a day of targeting military infrastructure, including the airfields. And there just seems to be no doubt that that will continue tomorrow. If he did manage to occupy the entire country, what do you think would would happen? Because this is a country that has so much anti-Russian sentiment, a capital like Kiev. Yes, I, I hear in your question the disbelief. How how can he occupy this massive landmass at a time like this, where he knows his he has intelligence, he knows that in the those two statelets in eastern Ukraine, he does have people who are loyal to Russia. He does have people who have now carry Russian passports, even though the past, some of them got passports just in the past few years. But cap, the capital, Kiev, and many other major cities is a totally, totally different situation. And I think it is fair to say that since 2014 and the first Russian invasion, all of the opinion polls have shown that the population has become more and more desirous of joining the NATO military alliance. Almost everyone I've met here talks about speaking Ukrainian now and not speaking Russian. If he does try, and this is what we expect, to occupy all of Ukraine, he will face not just military forces of the Ukrainian army, the reservists, the volunteers with the guns, but a, a popular uprising. That's why we hear reports that there will be an attempt to establish a puppet regime. I mean, this is a nightmare scenario. We are in uncharted waters. This is something that none of us, most of all the Ukrainians, 
would have expected to happen in our time. Even though we've been hearing from President Joe Biden, from some other Western leaders who've had their eyes on the intelligence, that this is what President Putin was planning to do. And I say President Putin, not to personalize it, but because there is a growing realization that a lot of this decision-making, a lot of this plan comes from the president himself. Lise, thank you. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you for being being interested in it. So before we go today, I want you to hear a bit of what is on our sister show, Nothing is Foreign. It's a weekly international news program that brings you the -the on-the-ground perspective wherever the story is unfolding. Tamara Kandakar is the host, and here she is speaking to a security expert, an Ukrainian who had taken shelter in the basement of his home in Kyiv. Did you have any plans for in case something like this happened? I did have. (laughs) I did have, but you know, uh, usually when it happens, uh, all the plans crashes and, and and. Yeah, I had this, you know, this backpack. Uh, I had uh, plans. I had uh, a walkie-talkie and so on. But when it happened, uh, it looks like I wasn't prepared. I, like I said, I had to buy today goods in the shops, food, water only today. But uh, I think you cannot be prepared for this. I mean, not just uh, not just uh, let's say physically, but morally as well, psychologically, because. It's really hard to be prepared for this, though I, I, I think I am quite resilient, but uh, it's hard when you are thinking about what, what's going to happen next, next uh, moment, next uh, minute, and next hour, and next day. You can subscribe to Nothing is Foreign wherever you get the show. That's all for this week. Front Burner comes to you from CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our producers are Simi Bassey, Imogen Burchard, Ali Janes, Katie Toth, and Derek Vanderweyck. Mackenzie Cameron and Nordin Korane do our sound design. Joseph Shabison did the music. The executive producer is Nick McCabe-Locos, and I'm Jamie Poisson. We'll talk to you on Monday. On 93.1 CFIS FM, that is the Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News. You can also catch Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stick around when After 9 continues. It is the Friday panel with your host, Rez Krebs. The Prince George Council of Seniors is looking for an energetic individual with experience in managing a not-for-profit organization to be their new executive director. The executive director leads a dedicated group of staff and volunteers in developing and implementing services and programs for seniors in our area. A full description of job duties is available at the Seniors Resource Center on the corner of 7th and Victoria. Qualified candidates are asked to submit a cover letter and resume by email to info.pg gcos at gmail.com by Monday. The Prince George Community Foundation's spring grant cycle is now open. Local charities are invited to submit their grant applications by March 15th. Projects must benefit the community in arts and culture, social services, environment, health, sports and recreation, or education. Eligible charities may request up to $10,000 to support their projects. Full details are available through the Community Foundation's website, pgcf.ca. Your Community Foundation spring grant cycle's application deadline is March 15th. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is continuing their series of online webinars. Everyone is encouraged to learn more about dementia and its stark impact on Canadians through their website, alzbc.org. 
While there, you can also register for free webinars or watch previous presentations. The next webinar is Traveling with Dementia, next Wednesday from 2 to 3. The Alzheimer's Society of BC, bringing you support and information for dementia at alzbc.org. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly sunny today, wind at 15K, a high of minus 4 with a wind chill to minus 10. A few clouds tonight, more wind, a low of minus 10 with a wind chill to minus 17. For Saturday, cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries, wind becoming south 20 in the afternoon, a high of minus 3 with an afternoon wind chill to minus 9. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome back to uh, another Friday edition of the Political Panel. Today we've got Trudy Clausen, Herb Martin, Art Betke, Eric Allen, and Peter Ewart. And of, uh, I'm, I'm your host, Rez Krebs. Of course, we're going to start today with this uh, sad and distressing news out of the Ukraine. And um, really, I mean, the main question is, what should Canada be doing? Uh I'm going to start with uh, Herb. I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The last thing that I heard was that Canada had uh, had shipped some night vision goggles. Should we be, should we be actually um, getting tougher with with one of the world's, I guess, superpowers? What do you think? Uh, yeah, they uh, actually uh, we are. Uh, Trudeau just uh, approved uh, lethal um, shipments. Um, I think about uh, 10 days ago, and there was, um, I believe, machine guns and sniper rifles uh, sent, uh, I think, within the last week. So that, that would have been the last shipment of arms to Ukraine. But, yeah, no, as much as, uh, as, much as possible, this is um, it's absolute crime um, in, in our day and age that this could occur. And um, I, it's just, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. The, the fact that... Um, Putin chose us. I think he's uh, he's totally misguided. The Ukrainians in the last hundred years have been uh, what four million were killed by Stalin through through starvation. Uh, Hitler killed um, probably around seven or eight million uh, in the Second World War. And uh, for Putin to think that um, he can come in and um, subjugate them, he's uh, totally misguided. This is uh, it's uh, and the the Western countries have to. Um, have to provide as, as stiff as sanctions as possible. Uh, the way to isolate uh, Putin is by money. He's the world's wealthiest man right now, with over $200 billion in assets. Uh, he's got a $150 million yacht. Uh, you know, basically, uh, you can look at um, Russia as a crime syndicate. And <clears throat> if all the other oligarchs are rendered um, penniless through uh, sanctions, uh, Putin will be uh, deposed from within. And I think that's the, the way that uh, the proper way to dispose of him. Art, do you agree with her? We should be able to depose him from within through economic pressure, or uh, should we be thinking about a hot war? Well, uh, no, the hot war is out. That's not going to happen. Uh, we could do something uh, with, with sanctions and uh, cutting off the money flow, but we won't. I mean, uh, Putin is a megalomaniac, and he feels de- humiliated by the diminished role of Russia, and he wants to reestablish the Russian Empire. So uh, he's already made moves in the past uh, when Biden or uh, Obama was president, and he was apologizing to the world. Well, 
was a good time to attack, and that's when he took Georgia and Crimea, if you recall. And with Trump as president, he sold offensive weapons to Ukraine, uh, sanctioned the Russian oligarchs, and increased defense spending. And uh, There was an incident in Syria where Russian forces attacked a much smaller American force, and the Americans annihilated the Russians, so lesson learned, and Putin behaved. And besides, nobody ever quite knew what Trump was going to do in any given crisis, other than it would be unpredictable. <laughs> and uh, so now the, the U.S. has the weakest president in history, uh, taking its marching orders from eco-zealots and shutting down its own fossil fuel industries. Same with Western Europe. They're all worried about this climate change, and they've shut down their, themselves, and they're importing energy from Russia. Uh, uh, under Biden, I mean, they've already said that the sanctions will not disrupt the flow of oil from Russia. They're pulling in 600 barrels a day from Russia. They were energy independent exporters under Trump. And the same with Europe. They shut down their own fossil fuels industry and they're dependent on Russia. They've stated that they will not go full bore on this, the sanctions. So what, a, what better opportunity would Putin ever find to expand his empire. Uh, yeah, it's not going to happen because we're not going to get tough enough, and he's just going to do what he wants. He's he's in charge. Yeah, this is a really good point. I think um, you know the the nineties we heard interdependence was a way to prevent war, and now we actually have interdependence. The the dependency of Western Europe on Russian. Uh, natural gas, the dependency of the United States on Russian oil, we see interdependence actually allowing a major power to take what they want. Uh, Eric, what do you think? Should we be thinking, uh, should we be preparing for actual war with Russia, or are we going to be able to uh, take Putin out through sanctions and other measures? Well, I'm sure they'll go the sanction route first. Uh, <clears throat> as far as Having a war planned with Russia, I'm sure the Americans had one planned for the last 20 years or something. What they're going to do, how they're going to do it, where they're going to do it, yada, yada. Along with uh, a lot of the European countries and the NATO allies. And I mean, that's the common enemy at this time in our history is is uh, Russia and China. So, But in the short term, uh, we'll do Canada anyway. We'll do the chicken and jump up and down and flap our our elbows, but we won't do anything for the simple reason we don't have anything. We got a 78,000 man army and uh, I think 20,000 of those are reserves. And, uh, you know, a few planes or something. We sent, I think we sent one truck so far and, uh, and one frigate over there to help or at least be in the area. So we're a very small player. And, and we got some serious problems of our own territory, like the, you know, the Arctic and, uh, and we only got 60 rangers up there with red shirts and 303 rifles. Uh, we're not in very good shape to uh, do anything. And we really have to change that picture, you know, to uh, become more of what we were after the Second World War and partly into the Korean War, where we were a country with some substance and people listened to us. Those days right now are gone. So we can throw some money at it. It's a bad situation. And... Uh, <clears throat> I think that they'll just bug around for the next two years, and so with, along with that, with the COVID and with Trudeau calling in that emergency thing, and uh, 
you know, we got enough headaches already, and now we got this on top of it. So, not good times. So, Peter, uh, I'm going to go to you next. Um, I did want to add in that it was an interesting. It was, it was an interesting um, uh, point with. Uh, uh, sorry, that the Ukraine was pulling off, like trying to become independent from Russia on in their own natural gas, and that was planned something like the day before the the invasion, right? Um, Peter, what's your what's your position on this? Uh, well, the way that I look at things here, like I, you know, in order for people to make up their minds in any way that. Yeah, we have to look at the phenomena in an all-sided manner, and we're not getting that from the media and the politicians. That, that we're getting non-stop war hysteria. And the line is being pushed that Putin and Russia are all bad and evil, and on the other hand, that the U.S., NATO, and Ukraine are all good. However, I, you know, I think an argument can be made that the Russian bear has been deliberately and repeatedly provoked by the U.S. and NATO. You know, like you take, for example, back when the Soviet Union fell apart. Gorbachev, the Russian president, was promised that there would be no eastward expansion of NATO, uh, incorporation of countries formerly in the Soviet bloc into NATO, and uh, that was never uh, abided by by the U.S. Since then, NATO has incorporated over a dozen of these countries. So Russia has uh, military, U.S. and NATO military, bristling at its borders as a tightening of a noose. And secondly, you had the uh, U.S. financed and supported coup in Ukraine, which brought in a uh, anti-Russian government with military that included neo-Nazis. So, the, and then furthermore, you had the Minsk agreement, which a number of countries signed, but Ukraine uh, r- refused to follow. And the last straw was being, was that um, the Ukraine president Zelensky said that Ukraine was going to seek developing atomic bombs, and uh, that sort of put things over the edge. But. Uh, in all of this, you know, what really disturbs me is that Ukraine has been goaded and egged, egged on by the U.S. and NATO. And they know what the outcome is. They're crying crocodile tears right now. But why would they push Ukraine to get into this position now where you have this, uh, you know, the Russian occupying troops, etc.? And, it's, you know, Russia's, in my opinion, Russia is being used for the geo- or Ukraine is being used for the geopolitical interests of the U.S. and NATO. I, I personally think that a much better solution is to have a neutral Ukraine uh, rather than one that is uh, a pawn of the U.S. and NATO. That's really interesting, actually. I mean, that's, that's how Austria kind of managed itself during the Cold War as well. Uh, Trudy, do you, do you think that Peter's right that we have this geopolitical issue that's been broiling since the 1990s? Or is it more along the lines of a criminal syndicate looking to expand its uh, territory opportunistically? Well, I've he- I've heard that argument as well, um, and I. But before I go on, I do have to admit that I was wrong several months ago when you asked, "Will Putin invade Ukraine?" And I said, "No, I don't think so." So <laughs> I think all of the pan- other panelists said yes, he would. Uh, so anyway, so I'm not for whatever my words worth uh, <laughs> on this, but. I mean, Peter raises some really interesting points, um, but you have to also keep in mind that Ukraine was not, was being neutral, but then they lost Crimea. Um, that's not exactly Russia being peaceful. That's, and I can understand the, um, Russia's difficulty with seeing NATO encroach, but 
was that because those countries were were fearful of being taken over by Russia, like Georgia was? Um, so, I mean, it's, it's sort of a it's a complicated thing. Yeah. It certainly is complicated. I mean, I, I'm, I personally, I'm just hopeful that uh, that Herb's right that the economic sanctions would be able to push him back. But the issue, is, of course, is that they continue to make plenty of money off of their oil reserves, uh, some of the largest in the world, and they still, Western Europe is still dependent on them. Well, right? that was a huge mistake on behalf of the West. Like the West, I don't know what. Like, I mean, we were so busy cutting everything off and, and ceasing production of energy and Russia saw an end, and, which they took. Uh, that's our fault. That's on us. Yeah. So we'll take a break and we'll be back after this. Heighten your executive performance with Vantage Point's Executive Lab. This transformational program will elevate your leadership skills to engage your board, staff, and volunteers and move your team towards your organizational goals. Registration and full details are available through the Executive Lab link under training at thevantagepoint.ca. The workshop runs seven consecutive Thursdays starting May 5th. Application deadline is March 24th. Vantage Point's Executive Lab, transforming not-for-profit leadership at thevantagepoint.ca. College of New Caledonia Community and Continuing Education has the training you need to pivot in your career. If you want to better handle difficult conversations and achieve positive outcomes, you'll appreciate management skills for supervisors, interpersonal communications, and conflict resolution. This comprehensive online course runs Monday and Wednesday evenings, 6.30 to 9.30, from March 14th to April 11th. Contact Community and Continuing Education at CNC for more information. Registration deadline is Monday, March 7th. The 2022 BKT and OK Tire World Women's Curling Championship is March 19th to 27th at CN Center. Full event, weekend, and single-day packages, as well as single-draw tickets, are all available for purchase online through curling.ca and at the CN Center box office. All fans, athletes, volunteers, and event staff will need to provide proof of full vaccination. The 2022 BKT and OK Tire World Women's Curling Championship, March 19th to 20th at CN Center. Take part in the Give Hope Wings 2022 Canada Coast to Coast Expedition, June 26th to 24th. This epic multi-aircraft series of flights consists of two stages, a western stage from Victoria to Toronto and an eastern stage from Toronto to St. John's, then back to Montreal for the COPA Convention. Join as a pilot, a flight school fundraiser, or a general fundraiser with your own donation event. Registration and full details are available through the Give Hope Wings link under Get in Involved at HopeAir.ca. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back, and uh, we're going to switch gears. Uh, earlier this week, the city of Prince George lost an injunction application at the Supreme Court of British Columbia to have the Moccasin Flats homeless camp down at Lower Patricia Boulevard removed. Um, they also were found to be in breach of the previous order because they had sent uh, city bylaw officers to remove tents even while the uh, Chief Justice Hinkson's uh, October judgment had said that the camp could stay. Um, you know, personally, I see this thing as the as the city continuing to put good money after bad in, in, a, in a misguided attempt to 
use a hammer when, in fact, a carrot would be much better uh, useful, more, much more useful in solving the problem. I'm going to start with Trudy. Uh, where should we go from here? Uh, there's an appeal, actually, that they've also launched to the previous. Oh, yeah, so there's more, yeah, more money being spent on legal. Mm. Golly. I, I, that, that whole business of, what was it, a day after the, um, the night's the Knights Hotel opened up, then they went in and, and started clearing that and, and got rid of people's property. I, I think that was just a reprehensible thing to do because I think they should have known and should have known that that was not a popular thing to do. And, you know, for, for council that seems to not want to step out and do something, you know, brave, that was sort of brave, if you could put it that way. But I think I th- there there needs to be a whole lot more done in the background and looking at the cause of homelessness and, and treating that and doing put, placing more energy there because I don't think I mean yes they're, they're, we're never going to completely solve the issue of homelessness but um, the the numbers of homeless that we have on our streets is, is a problem and I think like with so many organizations someone just has to take some leadership and, and say listen we need to get this together and need to actually have an impact on what we see in the streets and 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 the to to bring more people into housing and um beca- because this it's just it's getting bad it, it we the downtown business owners deserve better um and i think it's a failure of leadership herb given this uh Given this new ruling and the fact that the actually the city has opened itself up to um, to civil to a civil suit by the people who lost their property, do you think heads should roll? Yeah, I mean, not only was it uh, callous and stupid, um, it was predictable. Um, Abbotsford went down this path I don't know ten years ago when they uh, dumped manure in homeless camps, trying to get rid of them, and um, subsequently lost a number of court challenges. And um, so, you know, anyone with any memory or foresight uh, would not have gone down this path. Uh, who is it in City Hall that keeps doing this? It's ridiculous, and, yeah, they should they should lose their job. Uh, up to you, Art. What do you think? Should we be looking for uh, civil servants head-rolling, or do you want to continue on with the uh, with a, an appeal to the previous uh, decision? Oh, I think they'll lose the appeal anyway. The courts are not very favorable to things like that. Uh, this is a, a problem that's only going to get worse. And when you said, you know, using a, a carrot is more effective than a stick, uh, no, it isn't. The carrot just encourages more of it. And uh, we've seen that. We've been doing the carrot thing for quite some time. The more you uh, help them out, the more there will be. Uh, anything you subsidize, you get more of. The stick sounds awfully cruel. I would say it needs to be a combination of carrot mm-hmm. and stick. I don't want to appear heartless, but without the stick, you're just going to make it worse. That has been proven all over the United States and Canada, and even right here in uh, Prince George. Um, this one uh, American pundit that I pay attention to took a, a holiday in Wyoming last year. He's from New York. And... Uh, with all everything he was doing with his hiking and fishing and all that stuff, plus spending time in the cities. I mean, Wyoming is a fairly small population, uh, less than 600,000 for the whole state. No homeless people, nowhere, none in the streets. So, well, maybe we should go and talk to them and see what mm-hmm. they're doing right. 
I wonder about uh, cost of housing in Wyoming. Eric, what do you think? What's the next? Um, what's the next move here? Well, you know, we do have that uh, facility that they're building on First Avenue. That's supposed to be a wraparound type thing, so that you have uh, care for people with uh, mental challenges, and then you have all you know something there for the homeless. And then they have to also find a way to deal with the, well, kind of strange phrase, but the legitimate uh, uh, people who are breaking the law all the time and uh, probably should go to jail. So we have to deal with all three of those, and it has to be on a fairly big scale. And and this is what they're just striving for, but they only finished one part of that building. So we're looking two years down the road. Minimum. In the meantime, uh, BC Housing is buying up places, not just in Prince George, Vancouver, whatever, and putting people in there. And you always run the risk of just creating ghettos when you're doing that. So, <clears throat> if we go beyond that into the to spend lots of money and really look after it, kind of strangely, that could become a growth industry in Prince George, which we're very short of. And uh, uh, you know. We might have asylums and places all over the place to look after these people, and, of course, then they'll all come here. So I, I don't know uh, how you can stop it. Like, uh, I agree somewhat with art, where if you, if you provide people with a lot of this stuff, more will come to town. We don't have a bus service anymore. I think they used to give people getting out of jail a bus ticket back to their hometown or something. You can't get them out of town now. We don't have a bus. There's no bus. Can you imagine that? That we have no buses in British Columbia, uh, like that's incomprehensible, and we don't have it. And there's a lot of other things we don't have, and so we have to blame governments, and especially municipalities and provincial. They have to start dealing with all these problems. We basically hired them to deal with the problems, and then they come back to us and ask, "What, you know, what should we do about this?" In a poll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, then that's the issue here is I understand the city's dilemma because they don't have jurisdiction and they don't have capacity. So they hire, you know, some muscle. They used to actually, they, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they used to uh, have hired security guards and they basically transitioned that funding into hiring bylaw officers. Um, Peter, what do you think? What's the next step here? I mean, we do have 50 units coming online in the next month or so. That's going to put about a 25, 25% of the folks who are actually on the street today would end up with units. But I, I will say, just add this one more thing, there is a tidal wave of homelessness that's about to happen given the uh, incredible unaffordability of both rental and uh, purchased properties. What's next, Peter? Well, I agree with you. Like, uh, There's overall problems that are, exist here, like economic problems and so on that are are feeding the homeless uh, problem. Uh, I, I do think, though, that we do need more infrastructure uh, with support, you know, to uh, help deal with uh, the homelessness issue. You know, like there's just there's just no way around it. That it has to be done. And uh, I don't agree that uh, it, it necessarily means that uh, things are just going to keep growing. I think we need infrastructure to deal with the at the present level, and uh, we also have to look at the larger issue, which uh, a number of people have raised in terms of uh, the causes of this, because it's not just the Prince George problem, it's, 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 it's Vancouver, it's uh, Toronto, it's uh, the United States in a, in a big way, and we have to look at the, those under underlying big problems, as well as deal with the short-term 
basic issues of, of supply and infrastructure and supports for those people who are homeless at this time. I'm just going to have a final word here and recommend that everyone take a look at a documentary called Push from TV Ontario. It's free on uh, YouTube, um, and it looks at the financialization of of housing um, and puts a link between uh, the increasing unaffordability that even we're experiencing here in Prince George um, and transnational capital markets. That's a really, I think it's probably more than the things that we are even thinking about um, right now, today, whether it's the opiate crisis, whether it's uh, crowding on reserve, for instance, those kinds of issues are certainly at play. But the, you know, for every person who's on the street, there must be five or ten who are couch surfing right now. Yeah. We're only going to see more of that happening. I'm glad to see more uh, more rental housing starting to come in, into into the inventory here in Prince George. But uh, we're going to still have a real problem because people aren't going to be able to even afford to live in that rental housing if this financialization continues. So uh, thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFISFN. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned.